0: Hello and welcome to another installment of Soccer Pints, your one-stop shop for all things American soccer. I'm your host, Will Clark. If you aren't familiar, Soccer Pints is an American soccer podcast where we have pointed discussions about U.S. soccer, Americans abroad, Major League Soccer, and many other exciting topics. Today is the final part of our four-part series week, and it is by far the one I have been most looking forward to as we get to make our final roster predictions for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. We spent the first three parts of the series discussing each player pool, eliminating some individuals, and now we're left to make the last cuts to get down to a 26-man squad. It's safe to say at this point, we have around 22 to 23 players who are locked to make the team, with only a few question marks on what is left to decide. In addition to making our predictions today, we will review the most recent friendlies that the U.S. women had over the past week, as well as preview the MLS playoffs that begin this weekend. I also have a couple of questions left to answer and will give my final thoughts of the week too. And for today's episode, I have one of my favorite breweries to highlight, which I am incredibly excited about. But before I get into what is in my pint glass today, I just want to say thank you to those who reached out regarding the Florida Brewer's Guild highlight we did after Hurricane Ian. It's awesome to hear about others going out of their way to give back. And I also love hearing about beers the audience is consuming. Some from the past two weeks included Green Bench in St. Petersburg, Palm City and Crazy Dingo in Fort Myers, Three Sons in Fort Lauderdale, and Southern Swells in Jacksonville Beach. So, as always, if you happen to come across a great brewery with great beer and want them to be highlighted on an upcoming episode, I always appreciate the recommendations. But, back in February of 2019, my wife was pregnant with our third daughter, and we decided to take a trip to Portland, Maine. Some of you may ask me, why we picked that in the middle of winter. But at the time, we were living in Florida and wanted some colder weather. And it may have been the best decision we made because we came across one of my favorite breweries in the entire country, which is today's beer feature, and that's Bissell Brothers Brewing. And lucky enough for me today, I have a can of their OG flagship beer, The Substance Ale, which is an original New England style IPA that is 6.6% in alcohol, bright in color, and super dank in flavor. If you can ever get your hands on this one, I would highly recommend it. It tastes as good today as it did years ago. Bissell Brothers was conceived in November of 2011 by brothers Noah and Peter Bissell. They grew up in a small town in central Maine called Milo, and without any experience in commercial brewing or manufacturing outside of Noah's home brewing obsessions, they saw an opportunity, and they've run with it ever since. After a lot of hard work, the pair opened up the first Bissell Brothers taproom in April of 2014, which at the time was the right fit, but they quickly outgrew the space because of the immediate popularity in the region. By June of 2016, the brewery moved to their current Portland location in a 100-year-old former rail car repair shop right on the water in a spot what's known as Thompson's Point. Through continued growth and increasing innovation, they were able to open a second production facility and taproom room. Back in their hometown of Milo in 2018, which became more about exploration into mixed fermentation and barrel aging opportunities, and it's excelled ever since as well. By the time I got to experience the brewery in 2019, it was a sight to be seen. You can see and tell how much thought went into making it into an atmosphere unlike any other. The staff is amazing, super friendly and helpful, and just overall inclusive and accommodating to everyone and everything. It's like a family mentality in there, which makes for an awesome experience, including for my wife, who I mentioned was pregnant and got to watch me enjoy several delicious beers, including a favorite of mine called Swish, which I was fortunate enough to get on site. But whether you enjoy New England style juicy IPAs, stouts, or various ales, Bissell Brothers has it all. Just some of the most unique flavors out there that I've ever had. There just is nothing better than a great beer and great people, and of course, soccer. As Steve Smith of the brewery let me know, there are quite a few soccer fans on site, and there is also a Bissell soccer team that plays every week. So for any of those individuals that ever want to link up or chat more, give me a shout. I'd love to connect, and I hope everyone at the brewery is prepping for an amazing next month of watching soccer with the U.S. national team in the World Cup. So thank you to Bissell Brothers Brewing for letting me feature you today. Always a highlight of mine when I get to drink your liquid. Well, the time has finally come for us to make our final World Cup roster predictions. I mentioned this at the beginning of the week, but for these predictions, I am trying to take a guess at what Greg Berhalter will do, not what I personally think we should do. However, I will definitely add my two cents in for the selections I don't agree with. Another reminder that this World Cup, there are 26 players on each roster, unlike previous years that only consisted of 23 players. This year all World Cup rosters must be announced by the FIFA deadline of November 13th. Greg has announced that he will unveil the official roster on November 9th, 12 days before the U.S. face Wales in their first match. In the event of an injury or a COVID-19 case, replacements will be permitted up to the day before a team's first match of the tournament. So, even if a player isn't selected to the final roster, they could still replace someone before all is said and done. All right. Let's hand out the 26 plane tickets to Qatar. And after looking at our goalkeepers this week, we eliminated Gabriel Slonina and were left with Matt Turner, Ethan Horvath, Zach Steffen, and Sean Johnson. I've been saying I believe Matt Turner will be starting in goal for the U.S. next month, and that hasn't changed for me, so clearly he makes the roster. The main problem has been deciding who else is going on the plane with him. Steffen seemed to be a lock before seemingly looking like an unsure bet to go. Now he has returned to playing with Middlesbrough, and I think given his tenure and experience with Greg, not only with the national team, but also during his time with the Columbus crew, I just don't see him missing out on a ticket right now. Between Horvath and Johnson, I am giving the nod to Horvath. Horvath stepped up in a major way for the U.S. back in the Nations League final against Mexico, and has been a constant presence in the national team in recent years. Johnson has bounced in and out of camps, and despite his great form in MLS, he just misses out on a ticket. Moving to the defensive group, we really have a lot of names to consider and a lot of uncertainties in the center back area. I removed a few players already like Brian Reynolds, John Brooks, but I also left out a guy like George Bella, who is safe to be removed and likely why I forgot to mention him. At right back, we know Serginio Dest has his ticket. I'm giving DeAndre Yedlin one as well. In fact. He will be the only player in this entire squad with World Cup experience from back in 2014. I also believe, despite limited appearances and time with the national team, that Joe Scally is just too good and too versatile to not bring on the plane, so he gets a ticket too. Which brings me to Reggie Cannon. He's a favorite of Greg's, but he didn't look comfortable in September against Japan and sustained an injury that has kept him sidelined since. Given the depth we have with Dest, Yedlin, and Scally. Cannon is just going to miss making this final roster. On to the left-back spot. We know that Anthony Robinson has his ticket already. We just brought up Scally getting one, and and he can play cover at left-back as well as Can, which we saw against Saudi Arabia. But the other left-back in this group is Sam Vines, who got the start against Japan. But as I said this week, he really struggled to solidify a spot in the team. He has played so well at the club level, but it just doesn't translate over to the national team right now. He looked lost, and unfortunately for him, he is not getting a ticket because of it. So that is four tickets to outside backs, which takes us to the center back spot, where I think Greg will choose five players to bring on the plane. Walker Zimmerman, while he didn't look up to form in September, is getting a ticket, and most likely will start alongside Destin Robinson. Outside of him, I think we have a lot of options to choose from, but not a lot to be that confident about. If Chris Richards were fully fit, I think he would be the starter alongside Zimmerman. But he hasn't been playing much for Crystal Palace and he continues to deal with an injury sustained right before September camp. However, Richards is getting a ticket. Cameron Carter-Vickers also had to withdraw from the September camp, but he has returned to fitness, is back to playing, and is now captaining Celtic. He is playing as consistently as any defender in this group and should be a lock for a ticket as well. That leaves us with two more tickets and a group left that includes Aaron Long, Mark McKenzie, both of whom featured during September camp, as well as Eric Palmer Brown, Tim Ream, James Sands, and Austin Trusty. A statement I made after this September camp that applies to a lot of the roster bubble players is that if you weren't involved in September with the squad, that is not a great sign for you. And I still believe that to be true. I think we all know Greg has his system and his preference for the guys he wants. And regardless of the excuses he uses to eliminate certain players but keep other players, he is still in charge of selecting the roster that he feels is going to fit what he wants to do best. Obviously, I am not going to agree with a few selections, and this is one of them. Aaron Long is getting a ticket to the World Cup. So is Mark McKenzie. While Eric Parma-Brown was in the squad during September camp, he didn't get to feature and was also a last-minute replacement for injury, so he might as well fall into the same group as Ream, Trusty, and Sands. Now, if it were up to me, I would choose Ream over Long due to a form with Fulham, you know, in the Premier League, where he is captaining a Premier League team and playing the best soccer of his life, also with a great partnership alongside Anthony Robinson. Oh, Yeah. And he has versatility to play left back if needed, as he has done when Robinson was out injured. But it just doesn't make sense for Greg to want that in a squad, right? Just not a good fit for the system, I guess. I would also take a flyer on a guy like Austin Trusty over McKenzie. Trusty might not be that well-known yet and might not have been integrated into the national team much, if at all. But he is playing some fantastic soccer in the English Championship. And given this would be a back-end roster spot, even one of those extra three spots this year, why not take a chance on someone who is hungry and is proving themselves at a high level? Again, it's just what I would choose, but this is pretty much a like-for-like change, and I won't be upset if McKenzie's picked. On to the midfield group, and I think this group is the easiest one to predict. Almost everyone is comfortably in in their seat on the plane. Tyler Adams and Kellen Acosta have their tickets as our defensive-minded midfielders. Eunice Musa and Luca De La Torre have their tickets as our two-way midfielders. Weston McKinney and Brendan Aronson have their tickets as our playmaking attacking midfielders. So that leaves us with Johnny Cardoso, Malik Tillman, and Jordy Maholovic, And I think the only one of these three that has a chance is Tillman. I said as much Wednesday. I think the combination of his ability to play multiple positions up front and in the attacking midfield role which he prefers, allows him to contribute more than others. So Tillman gets his ticket here. And that's 19 tickets handed out, 7 more to go, which leads us to our final group, the attacking player pool. Fresh off of all of our minds from yesterday's episodes, we know a few who have their tickets in hand. Christian Pulisic, Gio Reyna, and Timothy Weah are written into the squad. Jesus Ferreira also has his ticket booked. The resurgence of Josh Sargent and Ricardo Pepe should be enough for both of them to see their way onto the plane as well, so I am giving them a ticket too. That quickly leaves us with only one ticket to hand out. As I went through this roster selection process, I kept trying to figure out who could be left out in order to justify bringing in someone else. Asking myself, does this make sense to put him in instead of him? Will this person even play? Can they contribute at this level? If you are keeping score at home, we still have Jordan Morris, Paul Areola, Jordan Pfock, Kevin Paradas, and Fulleran Belungan, who could all get this final ticket. I had eliminated a lot of our forward options yesterday, like Matthew Hoppy, Jossie Zardes, Haji Wright, and Brandon Vasquez, amongst others. I tried to truly put on my Greg thinking cap, which isn't saying much, but there is a clear and obvious final selection here. I tried to justify it. I tried to eliminate it. I tried everything, but I just couldn't not put this name on the roster because, again, this is what I think Greg will do, not what I want to do. And that is Paul Areola grabbing the final ticket. So with that selection, that wraps up the 26-man roster. Three goalkeepers, nine defenders, seven midfielders, and seven forwards. I want to just give a quick rapid reaction or some thoughts to what I think Greg will do versus what I hope he decides to do. After the qualification cycle, the summer window he had, and the most recent camp in September, Greg should have a very good idea of what he has in this player pool. He should know the talent he has and the potential this group has heading into next month. We have spoken about it tirelessly over the past six months, the good and the bad. While Greg has his favorites and his preferred system and tactics, I think it is very hard to overlook the very strong opinion amongst U.S. soccer fans and former U.S. players who believe at the national team level as a manager. You have to adapt your system and your tactics to the players and talent you have. You don't make players adapt to your preferred style just because it's what you want. Greg needs to have some different looks in this roster in order to make adjustments mid-game and play to the strengths of the team rather than to the X's and O's on his little tablet board. I already mentioned a couple of selections I would want to see rather than what I think he will do with bringing in Ream and Trusty into the defensive group over Long and McKenzie. In the midfield, I actually don't see anything else changing or the need to change anything. We have our set five and having Aronson and Tillman as the other two give us more winger options as well, which is why I'm going to have a very difficult time understanding why Greg selects Areola onto this roster, or Jordan Morris for that matter, over someone like Jordan Pifak. For me, bringing Ariola onto the roster wouldn't make any sense if you have Pulisic, Weah, Reyna, Aronson, or Tillman that would clearly be above him on the winger depth chart. Even Sargent could play out there as much as he's done with Norwich. This isn't intended to be a slight by, at Ariola by any means. But with that depth already on the roster, why not add another just because he's one of your favorites? With Ferreira, Pepe, and Sargent, none of them give you that true holding striker who can be a force in the box and score on a win. PFOC is different than all three of them. He plays a different style, which I get, and Greg terminology might not fit his system, but if you need a goal in the final 15 minutes of a game and are sending the ball forward trying to make something happen, are you truly comfortable having PFOC on the pitch or Ariola? I'll leave it at that. So come November 9th, we will find out the official roster, and I'm sure we will all have something to take away from it no matter what, good and bad. So I hate to keep things on a negative trend here, but if you keep if you weren't paying attention over the past week, the U.S. women's national team played two friendlies and lost back-to-back matches for the first time since 2017. Last Friday in Wembley Stadium in London versus England, the U.S. women took the field in front of over 76,000 fans. It felt as though it wasn't a friendly. The atmosphere was phenomenal and England were coming into the match as European champions after their own summer triumph. It was an excellent first half for anyone who watched, and after 10 minutes, the U.S. found themselves 1-0 down after some very poor defending on a cross from England for an easy tap-in. But the U.S. equalized on 28 minutes when Lindsey Horan forced a turnover near the top of the English box, and the ball fell to Sophia Smith, who took a quick touch and then rifled a shot past the English goalkeeper. Then the match became marred by our good friend VAR. Two minutes after the U.S. equalized and after a very long delay, it was determined that the U.S. had fouled England with a high boot just inside their own penalty area, and England was given a PK, which they successfully converted. Just four minutes later, Trinity Rodman looked to have tied the game up again, only for VAR to overturn the goal based on an offside call to keep the score at 2-1. Then on Tuesday of this week, The U.S. played Spain in Pamplona. It was a pretty even match in the first half until right before the break when Spain took a 1-0 lead off of a corner kick. After the ball bounced around and was blocked in the box a few times, Spain finally tucked the ball away into the net. The second half didn't get much better for the U.S. either. They struggled to get through the Spanish defense and just looked like a team that was void of any creativity. Then in the 72nd minute... Spain converted a fantastic volley off of a cross to take the 2-0 lead and put the U.S. away for good, giving Spain their first ever win over the U.S. I mentioned yesterday that the U.S. women will be playing in next summer's Women's World Cup. These results show that they need a lot of work in order to be competitive. Thankfully, they won't have to wait too long as they get together again next month and will face off against Germany on November 10th and November 13th in Florida and New Jersey, respectively. I feel like this U.S. women's team is in a very similar place that the U.S. men were a couple of years ago. Not in a sense that they are or were in danger of missing a World Cup, but in the sense that there are a lot of players coming through our program that haven't been able to fully take their roles in the squad and push out some of the regulars over the years like Alex Morgan or Megan Rapinoe. There is a lot of talented youth, and if the U.S. women's program isn't careful, they're going to miss out on a lot of creativity and just the overall development of their own player pool. Sometimes you have to let the newer names break through, and I think we have failed to do so and have allowed other nations to close the gap on us significantly. But more to come next month for the U.S. women as well, and I expect a bounce back against Germany. All right, shifting gears now into the 2022 Major League Soccer Playoffs, Which kick off tomorrow, Saturday, October fifteenth. On the final day of the season, we saw some exciting finishes to confirm playoff rankings and saw battles between Orlando and Columbus that ultimately decided the final playoff spot in the Eastern Conference, and between Real Salt Lake and Portland that ultimately decided the final playoff spot in the Western Conference. So overall, in the Eastern Conference, the one seed went to Philadelphia. Who tied the Western Conference number one seed, LAFC, for most points by a club in a season with 67. Both of the top seeds will get a buy into their respective conference semifinals. Number two in the East went to Montreal, who will face off against Orlando on Sunday, the 16th. The number three seed, New York City FC, will face off against the surprising sixth seed of Inter Miami on Monday, the 17th. The fourth seed belongs to the Red Bull New York who will face off against the Pat Noonan managed FC Cincinnati who also caught a lot of MLS fans by surprise this season with their extraordinary attacking play. They will be the first match played in the playoffs tomorrow at 12 p.m. Eastern. Going back to the Western Conference, the number two seed was Austin FC who make the playoffs for the first time in their franchise history. They will face off against Real Salt Lake on Sunday. The third-seeded FC Dallas will host the sixth-seeded Minnesota. The other match tomorrow pits the fourth-seeded LA Galaxy against the 5th seed from Nashville, who I should add, became only the fifth club in league history to make the MLS playoffs in each of their first three seasons. Some interesting matchups, especially seeing that a win by the Galaxy would have them face off against LAFC in the conference semifinals. I really like Austin FC out West, but... LAFC is going to be nearly impossible for anyone to beat out there. In the East, Philly is clearly the top team, but Montreal played great soccer all season. Since he has the ability to score on anyone, and NYCFC showed what they could do by winning it all last year. I like NYCFC winning the East and facing off against LAFC in the MLS Cup Final, but as we have seen in years past, anything can happen in these one-off playoff matches. The final will take place on November 5th, so Over the next three weeks, we will have some exciting matches to watch. Well, I answered a lot of questions about the U.S. men's national team recently, so I want to quickly answer a couple of questions that are non-U.S. national team related. Someone asked me who I would pick to win the MLS Cup, and since I just gave my prediction for the final, I'm going to just go ahead and predict that LAFC win their first MLS Cup. This is their second time winning the Supporters' Shield as the top regular season club, and just their second appearance in the playoffs since joining MLS as an expansion side in 2018. Their roster is just too loaded, and I just think they'll put it all together under the leadership of Steve Cherundolo. Now, coming from my Charlotte FC followers on Twitter, I was asked what I thought of Charlotte FC's first season despite them not making the playoffs. Listen, what Charlotte did as a franchise was pretty spectacular. They clearly had the support from their fans, ending second in the entire league in attendance with over 35,000 fans on average. They ended in ninth place in the Eastern Conference standing, being eliminated from the playoff race on the second to final match day of the season with 42 points. They had 13 wins, 18 losses, and three draws. They fired their manager in the middle of the season, which is never an easy thing for a squad to go through, but they fought hard, they played well, they overachieved in my opinion. I think they have a lot of room for improvement, and I believe the team developed together very well. They have a great identity, and now it'll be about adding some more pieces to help them take it to the next level next season. And finally, what will be your go-to beer during the World Cup? Now I couldn't remember if I had answered this a while back. I don't think I did, but I know I was asked how I planned to watch the World Cup, which is still a work in progress, so any local Wilmington, North Carolina listeners, send me a message with any ideas. Either way, I will have a few go-to beers during the World Cup. Yes, I will be having a beverage during all of the U.S. matches and will not be working those afternoons. I mentioned... I can be a nervous drinker during matches, so something like a pale ale or a pilsner with a lower alcohol volume is probably needed, but I'm sure I'll find a nice IPA to mix in as well. If I had more access to these Bissell Brothers beers, I would definitely prioritize those too. I also believe my friends at Palm City Brewing might have something in the works for the World Cup as well. Short answer is, I don't know exactly yet. Whether Whatever I have, it'll be fresh and not grocery store box at, or bought out of a box. Man... Feels good to do a regular episode again with different topics and Q&A. And now I get to go through a few final thoughts of the week as well. So here we go. This Tuesday, TBT Enterprises announced that they'll be putting on a million dollar winner take all prize with a 7v7 soccer tournament that will be held next summer in the great state of North Carolina. Those involved in creating the tournament and the idea for it is Clint Dempsey, who is serving as an advisor and will also serve as a manager to Team Dempsey, one of two teams already set to participate. The tournament will be similarly set up to how the World Cup is, with 32 teams in eight groups of four. They will have three group matches, then a 16-team single elimination knockout phase until a champion is determined. Terminate buy-in fees will start around ten dollars to $20,000, but more details to come in the future. I think this is an amazing concept and should bring out some of the best players in the world that aren't actively tied to professional clubs. I am also currently a free agent for anyone interested. Fun news out of Qatar on Thursday that says there will be special zones at the tournament for drunken soccer supporters to sober up. Qatar is a country where public drinking is restricted and would normally lead to jail time. So as an alternative to getting arrested, they are putting in place these special zones to help fans sober up. Basically, a holding tent for fans rather than throwing them in a Qatari jail cell. And for any of my LGBTQ friends who plan to attend the World Cup in person, Qatar has also insisted that gay fans can hold hands and nobody will be discriminated against despite same-sex partnerships not being recognized and in some cases, Punishable by death in the country. Yeah, seems like all of this is going to go really well for everyone involved. Finally, this week, last Friday, FIFA announced the final world rankings heading into the World Cup. Brazil will go into the tournament as the top ranked team, followed by Belgium, Argentina, France, and England coming in at fifth. Group B, which the US is in, is the strongest group at the World Cup based on the rankings with, what I just mentioned, England at 5th, USA coming in at 16th, Wales 19th, and Iran at 20th. The host nation of Qatar will be the 50th ranked team. The lowest ranked team in the World Cup will be Ghana at 61st. The highest ranked team in the world that won't be participating in the World Cup is 6th ranked Italy. Well, that's it for another episode of Soccer Pines and our final installment of the four-part series for our World Cup roster predictions. Now that we have made our final selections, it'll be interesting to see what Greg decides to do come November 9th when he will announce the official World Cup roster. Will he decide to pick players that fit his system, or will he listen to soccer pints and decide to go with what I said to do? That remains to be seen. Thank you again to Bissell Brothers Brewing for being today's beer feature. Definitely great beers to have while recording the show, so it's much appreciated. As I have mentioned previously, we are working hard behind the scenes to get some great material and guests onto the podcast soon, so expect those developments to intensify between now and the start of the World Cup for some different perspectives. Until next time, cheers, my friends.